In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. Hello. Hi. I have no items to discuss this week. Ooh. It was, I think, just a fairly, like, busy work week. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't really watch a lot of new TV or anything. I did. I watched the first, the season premieres of Atlanta and Beverly Hills. Okay. Did Are you current on both of those? I watched Atlanta. I didn't know Beverly Hills premiered already, so I'm not yes. current on that yet. Okay. Beverly Hills starts off with Dorit's robbery. Uh-huh. And it's 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 a very like dark toned episode to begin with, like <laughs> like you really get very few light moments. Yeah. Um. But there is there are a few great moments, and I just I love Garcelle so much. Me too. I Beverly Hills better like win me back soon because it's just taken this turn where. Every little minutia detail yes. is like 10 episodes long. Right. The fact that Lisa Rinna's storyline last season was you didn't send me a thank you note for my husband's pasta sauce oh that I gave you. God. That's not television, Lisa. That's not television. No. And I'm so over Dorit and Lisa. And Ugh. I used to love Lisa Rinna, too. I've never me been a too. huge fan of Dorit, but she kind of won me back in the middle. Yeah. Uh, I, I could I do still without like her. her. You know, I'm so over them and whatever. But Atlanta's yeah. great already. Yeah, fantastic. Right from the jump. Drew? Marlo. How is Marlo Drew still on the show? <laughs> I don't know. But I loved when Sheree said that Marlo's over there looking like the candy my grandma used to give me oh. in church. <laughs> oh my god, it was so accurate. <laughs> it was. It looked just like those strawberry candies. I actually liked those in a weird way. Isn't that, is that oh. strange? No, I loved them because they were kind of, they had a little bit fizziness. of a softness, fizziness. I feel like they had like a little fizzy quality to them. Like not like a pop rock or anything, like really. But I felt like the candy had some sort of like, it wasn't like creamy. It, well, it had like a goo, gooey center. Yeah. Yeah, but I but felt it, like it had some sort of like bite to it, I guess I should say. I don't say. think so. The candy but part of it. Maybe I'm misremembering. I don't, I don't know. know. I like what them, do you? Though. What do you? What about you? What's what's um, going on? Let's see. I, I I got a promotion at work. Oh, congratulations! Thank you. I'm very excited about it. That's awesome. Yeah, it goes into effect on Monday, and it comes with a little boost in money, which is always great. Yeah. And I was kind of worried because I'm fully remote that mm-hmm. I wouldn't be eligible for these types of positions, but I'm yeah. very excited that I was chosen. That's very cool. Yeah, I'm very. Very much looking forward to it. And between us and the listeners, I think <laughs> that um, their decision to keep me remote definitely helped the company because now they're letting everyone be fully remote. Oh, wow. If they want to be. And they just hired someone from Georgia. They have another employee that we just hired that lives in like Temecula, which is obviously not quite as far as Georgia and New Jersey. But, you know, it's it's nice. It gives us a lot more op- options for good candidates. Yeah. So. I think uh, hey. my my employer is uh, not not me particularly because I work with great people, mm-hmm. um, but higher education generally I think is really struggling and is going to continue to really struggle because there are so there like research universities particularly the faculty are so a lot of the faculty I should say are really 
of the opinion that like everybody should be on campus and everything should be in person Mm -hmm. and like sure that's great and all but number one that doesn't work for all students number two uh in especially in santa cities like santa barbara that are ridiculously expensive to live in (laughs) it it makes it so that we not only are we not attractive as an employer because we're not offering like permanent remote positions or things like that right now but then also, you know, people wouldn't want to relocate here because it's so expensive. So yeah. we're we're having like the hardest time filling any positions. And I feel like if higher education doesn't figure itself out soon, it's uh, going to have a really hard time having staff to operate it. Yeah, I feel like that's a really tangled yeah. web that goes far deeper than just, you know, the do we want to or yeah. not? Oh, yeah, 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 I think for it sure. Goes so much into how much money universities make for things that require you to be on campus and yes, clubs and, and yes, frats yes, and yes. sports and, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and it, it, there's also just this kind of like weird thing of, you know, stu- because state and federal contributions to higher education have declined over the years mm. while cost of operations have increased. Mm. And so um, that has, like, primarily been compensated for with student fees and tuition, uh, which sucks for, you know, our students, because in theory, it's supposed to be, like, free public education. Mm -hmm. Um, But so because of that, like, even if everything is operating as it should and students are getting all the services and things that they should... Uh, like if there's a perception that students are paying a bunch of fees and like there aren't people there to like make it to give kind of like a visual indication of all the services that are happening it like people are really afraid of that yeah you know what I mean so anyway enough about higher education budgets (laughs) (laughs) um I have you ever watched I don't know if I asked you this during the first season but did you ever watch Russian Doll I did I Still don't understand it, but I love <laughs> Natasha Leon, and I know the second season came out. Yeah, we just started the second season. We're probably maybe halfway through. Really How good. Is it? Yeah, I didn't know where they were going to go with it from the first season. I mean, there's so many ways to go because it's such a weird show. Yeah, which I love. I just I I feel like it left off with her and a hot guy in the elevator. Yeah, it gets yeah yes, and okay. it gets weirder. Like, if you oh, thought great. the first season was weird and complicated and complex in its uh, um, ideas and uh-huh. the way it presented it, just I mean, wait. just wait. It gets way more complicated, way more mysterious. Mm, um, fun. And, oh, what's the actress's name? I love her. She was in Big Love with the blonde hair, the braid. Chloe um, Sevigny? Yes, yes, yes. She's a, a bigger character in the second season. That oh. thrills me to pieces, so. Yeah, she's a strange one. She's a good actress. She's a weirdo, though. Yeah. I mean, not as a person. Like, she always plays weird she plays. characters. Yeah, yeah. She, and very well. <laughs> yes, very well. <laughs> um, so that's that's what we've been watching. Other than Housewives, we're catching up on all Housewives still, of course. And, yeah, I think that's kind of, oh, it was just Friday the 13th yesterday. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. So uh, Davey and I went by our friend's house, uh, Ryan and Marianne, and they're friends of the podcast. Ryan is Scary Hours on social media and all that, does the music yes. and stuff. And we watched um, 
first of all, I have to say just a big thank you to him for watch, always listening to our show. He texts yes. me literally every Thursday when it comes out oh. and tells me what he thinks about it. And I'll, I'll, let me just read a shout out from him to you, actually. Okay. I meant to text this to you, but might as well do it on the air because it's like, you know, appreciating our, our listeners. Yeah. Um, they said about the last episode where you cover Charles Manson. Oh, yeah. They said, please let Ed know they did an incredible job consolidating the Manson story. Wow, that's a big story to tackle. Been digging into it in the past, but as Anne pointed out, there's so much to it, and it seems no matter how the information is organized, it gets convoluted. So great job. Thank you. Yeah, it was a very challenging case to figure out what I could cover in, you know, the standard amount of time. Sure, yeah. I think you did great. Thank you. Um, And, And it's such a weird case, too, because... It's also wrapped up in like people, different people's perspectives of what happened. That like I feel like nobody really has the entire true picture of everything. Right, and I guess they never will because that's kind nope. of how those those folks were. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we we decided. Speaking of spooky, scary things, we decided to watch scary movies for Friday the Thirteenth. Oh. Okay. And <laughs> we did you watch Scream? On, no, we did that. We've done Scream already, like a couple weeks, maybe a couple weeks or a month or so ago. We did okay. the first two screams. Um, we did I Know What You Did Last Summer. <laughs> oh, my God. How was it? <laughs> I haven't seen... I First of all, I'd never seen the second one, which we also watched. That's um, Jennifer Love Hewitt, right? Yes. And okay. Sarah Michelle Gellar and Ryan Felipe, or Philippe, and Freddie Prince Jr. Oh, ri- wow. I mean, if you want to talk about the premier the late 90s cast, I mean, that yeah. is it, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, and Brandy is in the sequel. Hello. Oh my god! Yeah. I forgot about that. Right, I had never seen it, and uh, the first one I had seen probably when it was on like Stars after it came out of the movie theater. <laughs> yeah, so I really didn't remember a lot of it. It was incredibly enjoyable to watch both of them. Um, very convoluted storylines. Very um, lots of unexplained things happen. <laughs> yeah, those could be definitely ones we do for our Patreon for sure. Especially I... at least the first one. I feel like, uh, you know, in or I know what you did last summer had to walk so that shows like Pretty Little Liars could run, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, so yeah, that's that's all I've been doing. That's my big updates. Well, great. Should yeah. we get into the episode? Let's do it. All right. Now comes my moment of intense fear, which is I'm the recapper sure for are. this one, right? Yes. Okay, good. Thank God. <laughs> and also we record our Patreon and I'm also the recapper for that one, right? Yes. And mine is oh, a big phew. one for the Patreon. Okay. Well, this is season four, episode eight of Law and Order. It is titled American Dream. Mm. And this episode opens with like briscoe at a crime scene and it's apparently like an archaeological dig had been happening and they discovered a body when they were doing the archaeological excavation and i have two things to say about that one is the guy who discovered the body who is an archaeologist is extremely cavalier about that he's like oh yeah you know happens all the time (laughs) which i don't know that that's true but okay um, and then the other part of that that I thought was weird is it seems like it they were just going to build a building there. And so the why were they doing an archaeological dig? 
you know? Yeah, did they know it was some sort of, like, ancient site and they needed to do that before they leveled the ground? I don't think that's what they I do. Know. I don't think there's that much care or funding, if that even yeah. was the case. I feel like you probably, like, land surveyors just, like, look back at old records or something to see what the land was before. But, yeah, I don't know that that happens. Yeah. I'm, I'm not a builder, so. <laughs> anyway, so the body that they found... Ha- is appears to be the body of a man he was wearing okay here's the other thing that is like what is going on here the decomposition of things is very inconsistent because the body is just bones Mm -hmm. but there's still a like cashmere blazer on it and a toupee very strange i'm like okay so everything decomposed except for a toupee and a blaze it just seemed really weird yeah, and it was like, the piece of blazer that they show is very much intact. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like fabric from yes. mood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, they, anyway, the, all, all they have to go on is toupee and a blue blazer, which they identify as cashmere, <laughs> uh, which has gold buttons on it. And uh, there's no teeth. The teeth had been removed from the remains. Yikes. So we get the title sequence. And I had a little bit of time, so I decided to train for a 5K. (laughs) And after running a few miles, I figured, okay, I should probably head back. That was like enough of a warm-up for now. Mm -hmm. P.S. I could not run a few miles if if you put a gun to my head. Oh my gosh. If you made me run a few miles right now, I would be like, it would be like a boy in his blob. A hundred percent me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. When we come back. Uh, They are talking to forensics, and we learn that the body had a uh, 22 caliber slug in the skull, and the trajectory indicates that it was shot from, like, the base of the skull behind into the body. So they're like, oh, that's a typical, like, mob hit kind of mode of death. Mm -hmm. Um, He was a male. He was of medium build. They said he had a little bit of a hunch in his back. Um, which <laughs> Rude. Logan is like, uh, we've got 640 people, uh, but none of them are on <laughs> hunchbacks with toupees. <laughs> uh, but the body, he died between two and 10 years ago. And they're like, we need to run more tests to kind of like narrow it down. Mm-hmm. So, oh, I forget. What did we name the guy who likes to walk in oh, and hand Jeeves. them? Detective Ask, Ask Jeeves. Jeeves. Thank you. So Detective Ask Jeeves walks in and, and is like, here, the Emmy pulled this out of your John Doe's knee bone. And we don't really, it, there's no explanation for what it is at first, but eventually we learn that it's like a metal pin in the knee. Um, which, by the way, Logan decides to just open the evidence bag and like play around with the metal pin. Yeah, he's which like flipping I it around his finger. Like right. it's a ring of keys. <laughs> yeah, or the uh, that pencil trick that you can do where you move it from finger to finger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and the body also had a Rolex, which Briscoe notes was from Hong Kong. I don't know if Rolexes are manufactured in Hong Kong or if that was meant to imply that it like wasn't a real Rolex. I don't know either. I don't know. I don't know why that was mentioned. So their next step is a button store. So they head to a place called Queen Anne's Buttons and talk to a button expert. I can't and even. what 
I don't, maybe in the 90s, but I cannot imagine any storefront operating solely on the sales of buttons. And I'm sorry, if there is a button store, I promise you that the person behind the counter is not a button expert. No, it is a surly teenager making minimum wage. (laughs) 100%. But this woman was like a... A historian of buttons. A button um, aficionado, if you will. A button, a buttonhead, if you will. <laughs> and she <laughs> tells them that the button was British, made of 18 karat gold, and post-World War II. And she says it's a hand-stamped Harrison Townsend button. Uh, very fancy. Very and expensive. <laughs> she offers them some comparable buttons because that company isn't in business any longer. But the comparable buttons are like $300 for a set of buttons, and the these buttons that they recovered from the scene would have been even more expensive. Mm. So they're like, okay, so who would be wearing a cashmere blazer with super expensive buttons? So they go to the list of missing persons, and they kind of like go through... <laughs> A list of, like, they're like a children's choir, mm-hmm. um, blah, blah, blah. And one of the groups of people is realtors. And Logan says that realtors are a prime suspect for a shallow grave. I and mean, I, I, I didn't know people just offed their realtors left and right, but all right. Me neither. I know many people who have their realtor's license. Uh, yeah. Shall I call them and warn I, them? Right. Are you okay? Yeah. Um, <laughs> So they head down to that realty company that has a a missing person, and we learn that that company's not doing very well financially, and they kind of mention the blazer and the buttons, and he says, like, oh, yeah, we used to give those out. We haven't done that in years. And they're like, who would have gotten the blazer? And he's like, I don't know. I would have to, like, look up papers that are in, I think he said, like, Weehawken, New Jersey storage unit. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, but they find a, like a box full of plaques with like salesperson of the year. And so they decide to kind of like go through that list to see if it would be any of those people because maybe they like got the blazer as a congratulations, you sold a bunch of stuff. But that doesn't lead them anywhere except for there is a woman who uh, was a realtor who her husband went missing. And so they're like, well, maybe she got the blazer for him, like as, you know, she was selling a bunch and it was a thank you to her or whatever. Right. So they head down to that woman's apartment and her name is Beverly Dorfman. And she said her opening line is, yes, that's one of the buttons. (laughs) And she explains that she's allergic to cashmere. And so she gave it to her. Oh, I'm sorry. It wasn't her father who went missing. It was her or, or her husband. It was her father. Uh, And she says that she got the blazer and gave it to her father. Uh, And she says that he's been missing since 1984. And she says he was murdered. I'm sure you've heard about it. Mm. And we learned that his name was Sidney Cohen. And they had put his murderer away for life. His murderer is in jail right now. Uh, And his murderer was a man named uh, Philip Swan, who they call the Wall Street whiz kid. (laughs) And it's notable, the case was notable because they had convicted him without uh, recovering the body, which is, you know, no body, no crime kind of thing. Yeah. So when they tell her that the body had been recovered, like, somewhere in Manhattan, she's like, well, that can't be him because 
at his original trial, there was a witness who testified that he had helped bury the body in New Jersey. Mm. And they're like, well, did your father have a pin in his knee? And she's like, yeah, he was in a car accident and had to have a knee, you know, a pin put in his knee. And so then they go back to the medical examiner and they compare x-rays of the uh, remains with the original x-rays in Mr. Cohen's car injury uh, hospital stay and they match up perfectly. Mm -hmm. So they're like, well, this is definitely him. So they bring everything to stone to kind of be like, we found a body. It's not where they said it was, uh, but it's definitely him. So there might be a, a problem with the original case. And we learn that Stone was the prosecutor of the original case. Ooh. And by the way, the, the running theme of this whole episode is Stone is convinced he did the right thing convicting this guy. Uh, Philip Swan, that he definitely committed the murder. And every time they're presented with anything that contradicts that, Stone gets kind of super defensive. Yeah, we know that Stone not only is very, like, virtuous and needs yes. to do the right thing, but he doesn't think he makes mistakes. He dots all his I's, crosses all his T's, Yes, you know, talks yeah. out of the side of his mouth, all of that. <laughs> talks with his lips Mom. very close together. So... Philip Swan was essentially uh, running a pyramid scheme, and he had pissed off a lot of people by, like, scamming them. But then we learned that Philip Cohen, who, I'm sorry, uh, Sidney Cohen, the dad who had been murdered, was, like, scamming him. So don't scam a scammer, because apparently they'll shoot you in the back of the head. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> by the way, I still cannot hear the word scammer without thinking of Joanne the Scammer. How could you not? How so could you not? That's canceled. That's over. That's so, done. <laughs> so we learn that in the original case, uh, the witness had said that Sidney had been killed by, like, slashing his throat. But based on this evidence that they've recovered, they know it was a gunshot wound that had killed him. So the witness testimony is a little... Uh, inconsistent with the actual evidence. Mm. So Stone, again, adamant that this had all happened. So he says, you know, the witness said he was there, that he helped bury the body. And in prison, or no, not in prison, prior to his conviction, Swan had apparently, like, gone around bragging to everybody about having killed Sidney Cohen, which doesn't seem like the smartest move to me. No. Um, Kincaid wonders if Swan is innocent, but Stone is like, no, he's de he definitely did it. We just have to figure out, like, how this evidence all fits back together. So Schiff tells them to go talk to uh, th a man whose last name is Bobbitt, and he is the guy who was giving testimony uh, of having been an accomplice to burying Sidney Cohen's body. By the way, when they kept saying Bobbitt at first, I thought they were like making an analogy to the Lorena Bobbitt case. Me and too. then I was like, oh no, it's a it's a character in the episode. Yeah, I was like, are they going to try to link this together? Right. <laughs> um, so Briscoe and Logan go and talk to him and he's like, listen, he has a line. I don't, when they tell him that they found his body in Manhattan and he's like, well, we buried him in New Jersey. And he says, I don't care if you found the body on the moon. I know where we buried it. But Stone says that uh, Bobbitt had originally been unable to lead investigators to the site of the burial. And he explained that it was because Swan had been driving. He 
was just a passenger. They kind of question him about stabbing having been the cause of death versus shooting, and he says, I never looked at the body. It was, like, wrapped up, and Swan just told me how he had been killed. So Stone thinks that Swan is just a habitual liar, and that he did commit the murder and just told Bobbitt a different uh, method of murder, blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, they get a call that Swan is now contesting his original conviction based on this new evidence. Mm. So Stone heads to the courthouse for the hearing, and Swan greets him, and he's played by an actor named Z-E-L-J-K-O is his first name. Last name is Ivan. Mm-hmm. And the thing, I, I definitely recognized him. Um, he did look familiar to me, but I don't know from what. I think his biggest role was he played Ray Fisk on Damages, which, did you ever watch Damages? No. <gasps> you have to. Add it to your list. It's really, really good. Damages, huh? Yeah. Uh, with uh, Glenn Close. Huh. Y- yeah. Glenn Close, not Meryl Streep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so apparently Swan is acting as his own attorney, which upsets Stone because, you know, that's always, it seems irritating to all judges and lawyers when that happens. Mm -hmm. Um, but he says that, uh, you know, you should reverse my conviction because you convicted me based on the assumption that this body was buried in New Jersey and it wasn't. And so you now have to reverse that. Uh, verdict, which ultimately they do rule in his favor, and so he is brought up on a second trial. We get a couple of really boring scenes where they talk to like people <laughs> who knew Philip Swan when he was like a Wall Street whiz kid. It really is not uh, pertinent to the story, so I don't know why we got them. But they there it was like a whole bunch of scenes where they were like the bulls, the bears, the you know, <laughs> sell it hot, buy buy low. You know, it's just so. a lot of that. Yeah. <laughs> then we get a scene where we learn that on the remains of Sidney Cohen, they found lava dust. Oh yeah, lava dust. You know. As you do. Uh, so now they're seeing, like, okay, so there was this unique kind of soil on his remains, uh, which are consistent with an area in New Jersey that he had supposedly been buried in. Buried in. So they think now what happened was that Swan murdered Philip Cohen, took Bobbitt, and they buried him in New Jersey. And then Swan was afraid Bobbitt was going to rat him out. So he went, dug up the body, and moved it to Manhattan. Okay. So they're able to kind of track down Philip Swan's car from 10 years ago, and they do find lava dust in his in the trunk of his car as well. Uh, so it, it's a pretty clear indication that the body had been in his trunk at some point after it had been buried in New Jersey. But... Swan is able to kind of like play this off later as like, hey, I play golf in New Jersey. And so it could have been on the cle- from the cleats on my golf cleats. All right. So <laughs> meanwhile, Stone is like trying to put this case back together to retry him. And is it's he's having a hard time because like 10 of the original witnesses have either like moved on or died or can't be found. 
And meanwhile, Bobbitt, the main one who who provided evidence that put Swan away the first time, has vanished. And supposedly he had bought a ticket to Barbados like that morning and is gone. So now they're really the only witness that they had at that point is has vanished. And so Stone's case is kind of like crumbling around him. Mm -hmm. So Stone tries to get a postponement of the trial, the retrial, so that they can find Bobbitt to testify. Uh, But Swan is able to he Swan is like uh, outsmarting Stone at every turn, which is very irritating to Stone, Mm -hmm. uh, to say the least. Um, And he's able to convince a judge that not only should we not postpone the trial, but you shouldn't even allow Bobbitt's original testimony because the retrial has to be based on this new evidence that you collected and if Bobbitt can't be found, I can't cross-examine him. And so you shouldn't be able to read his old, his original testimony into court evidence, which the judge also agrees with. So meanwhile, Stone is like, okay, we know that Swan is a braggart. And so let's go talk to folks that were in prison with him. So they go and talk to some inmates. Da, 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 da. And they managed to convince one of them to uh, testify that Swan had told him that he had killed uh, Sidney Cohen and moved the body. So in court, uh, they get one of the financial guys on the stand. It's really boring. And then, but he does say that (laughs) he saw one day that Swan had a to-do list and it was like, 2 p.m., dry cleaners, like 3 p.m., pick up golf clubs, 9 p.m., kill Sidney Cohen. (laughs) Casual. Uh, I don't think that is a typical thing that somebody would do, but all right. Hey, there it is. Um, So they get the inmate on the stand, the guy who had uh, said that Swan had bragged about killing Sidney Cohen in court, and that he testifies that Swan uh, had killed Swan because Cohen had screwed him out, screwed him on a deal. Uh, and he says that Swan had told him that he and Bobbitt had buried the body in New Jersey. Uh, and then Swan talked about how he had moved the body because he didn't trust Bobbitt. Swan cross-examines this inmate who he had been in prison with. And he learn- he's able to get the inmate to admit that he had testified on a case in Texas... And he was found to have perjured himself as a witness in that case. And so he is, Swan is able to essentially convince the jury that this uh, inmate is just lying to, you know, get a reduced sentence in exchange for testimony. Meanwhile, Swan gets on the stand and Swan is essentially testifying and like kind of questioning himself because he's serving as his own lawyer. Um, and he explains that there were a lot of people who had been mad at him about the pyramid scheme that he had been running, but he didn't kill any of them. So why would he have just picked out Cohen to kill of all of those people who hated him? Stone questions him about the, you know, 9 p.m. murder Philip, murder Sidney Cohen on his to-do list. And Swan is like, that was a joke. Uh, and he Uh asks him about, (laughs) right. 
And he asks him about the dirt from New Jersey that's in his car that matches the remains. And he says, you know, I used to play golf in New Jersey. So the jury comes back with a verdict of not guilty. And Stone wonders, like, Stone, of course, isn't letting this go, despite the fact that, you know, Swan won his retrial. Mm Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, Bobbitt has never resurfaced, and so Stone is wondering if Swan had Bobbitt killed or maybe bribed him to not testify. So in the DA's office, meanwhile, Stone is served papers, and we learn that Swan is suing both Ben personally and the state of New York for $10 million for malicious prosecution and various civil rights violations. Stone, much to Schiff's dismay, decides to represent himself in this case. Uh, And so we get a scene where Swan is deposing Stone, and he kind of just continues to wipe the floor with Stone and says, you know, this isn't like my first case, Uh, you know. Oh, oh no, he's wiping the floor with Stone, and Stone is like, "How how is he so knowledgeable about the law? And Swan says, it's not like this is my first case. Mm-hmm. And so Stone is like, maybe he was like reading up on legal stuff in prison and was operating as other inmates' lawyer. Uh, and in exchange, one of them made Bobbitt disappear. So they go back to the inmate who had perjured himself on the stand. And what we learn is that he they had thought he was going to be a great witness for the prosecution, but it was all a scheme so that he, he it would come out that he perjured himself and Stone's case would fall apart. Mm-hmm. He asks that inmate, where's Bobbitt? And he says, I had nothing to do with that. Uh, and Stone says, I'll charge you with accessory to murder if you don't tell me what you know. And he points them to a guy named George Mislansky, who is apparently the hitman who took out Bobbitt. Logan and Briscoe go arrest him, and uh, in interrogation, they offer him a plea deal to murder two if they provide info on uh, Philip Swan. So he takes Logan and Briscoe to the location of Bobbitt's body. Sure enough, they find it. And so now they're able to arrest Philip Swan again, this time for uh, orchestrating the murder of Russell Bobbitt. Stone and Swan meet in Stone's office, and Stone essentially gets the last laugh, and Swan is like, I've already gotten this far, while Stone is like, you're right back where you started. Uh, And then the episode ends with this weird moment where Stone chastises Swan for calling him Ben. Mm -hmm. He's like, in polite society, you don't call somebody by their first name if you don't know them very well. And Swan is like, "Uh, all right, Ben. And uh, Swan is like, I'm not going to give up, not after I've gotten my biggest victory, a.k.a. beating you in court. And then Stone is like, you don't know me, and you never will. Mm. And that's the end of the episode. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun. Got him. Yep. <laughs> burn. <laughs> Sick burn, Stone. Well, I'm glad Stone got his way. Yeah. Do you have any guesses for the inspiration? Um, I mean, the only thought I had was like a, a mob-related case, since they mentioned that at the beginning. Okay. Uh, but not really. All right. Well, buckle up. Okay. This episode is inspired 
by, I don't want to, I want to bury the lead a little bit. So I'm just going to say it's inspired by the story of the Billionaire Boys Club. Okay. Have you ever heard of the Billionaire Boys Club? I feel like I have, but I'm not piecing it together. I've heard the phrase before. Okay. um, But I always thought it was just like a silly phrase that guys used for their little posses. Right. (laughs) And I know it's an ice cream company now of some type. But Billionaire's Boys Club is an ice cream company? I think so, because when I was researching this case, I had to be very specific about what I was looking up, because <laughs> ah. I kept getting these ads for... Okay. But anyway, for ice this cream? Is, That's funny. Yeah, this is for a an older case that we're going to go back to the 60s, 80s time. Just... Did you just say the 60s, 80s? Yeah, I mean, it's really in the 80s, but we're going to start in the 60s when uh, one of the main characters <laughs> is born. Okay. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> so, Joseph Henry Gamsky was born in 1960 to a middle-class family, and after attending elementary school and middle school and displaying very impressive grades, he was accepted on scholarship into the Harvard School for Boys. No affiliation with Harvard, the university. Oh, okay. Um, It used to be called the Harvard School for Boys. It's currently operating under the name Harvard-Westlake School. All right. Somewhere in California, I think, in L.A. County. Um, It's a very prestigious and expensive preparatory school, Hmm. and he was surrounded by far more affluent people than he was. He was there on a scholarship, remember, and his family did not make the same sort of money that most of his classmates did. Okay. Um, Most of his classmates had famous families or really, really rich ones, and he always aspired to their sort of level of wealth, even as a, you know, freshman. And tell me his name one more time. Joseph Gamsky. Joseph Gamsky. Okay. Okay. One of his classmates says of him, quote, Joe was always out to prove himself better and smarter than the rich kids, and he was. (laughs) So he strived for good grades, and he even applied to be in, you know, school office positions multiple times. Mm -hmm. And while he was very successful academically, he really never got elected to any position. But that doesn't mean he wasn't popular. He used his time there very well to sort of hobnob and network with all of his affluent classmates. Yeah. Um, He ended up using his charisma and charm, uniqueness and talent. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) His charisma and charm to really win most of his classmates over. He had a lot of friends. Okay. Um, After graduating, he attended USC for about a year and a half, and then he dropped out. (laughs) Then he decided to take his CPA exam, despite not having a degree, and he passed. And this made him, at that time, the youngest person in the state of California to pass a CPA exam. Wow. So despite not having his degree, his status as a CPA helped him earn a job at a very well-known Chicago commodities firm. I'm not exactly sure what the name of the place was, but he got a job there as a commodities trainer. Trader, 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 yes. Okay. And this is not my world at all. Commodities <laughs> trading or any of any of this type of stuff. So I had to look it up. Buy low, sell high. Exactly. That's about as much as I know. <laughs> um, I picture like the old cartoons where you go to the stock market and there's people, there's cartoon characters sweeping papers off of a floor of a big oh room. Oh my god! <laughs> Phones yes. ringing off the hook. Yeah. Um, so I looked it up on Investopedia, and here's just the, the main bullet points of what a okay. commodities trader does for anyone out there who's like me. 
Okay. So commodity traders are individuals or business or businesses which buy and sell physical commodities such as metals or oil. Okay. Uh, traders in this area aim to profit off of anticipated trends as well as arbitrage opportunities. Mm-hmm. And commodity traders may work to secure a supply of raw material for a business or industry to help create liquidity in an international market or to invest in speculative capacity. Liquidity. Liquidity. That's a fun word. Yeah. Um, So basically they're, you know, trading in commodities like oil and metals, like physical sort of tangible things instead of stocks, I'm guessing. That's the best I can do. And that's about all I'm going to talk about in terms of what his (laughs) career was, okay? Great. So he did this for some time at this firm before he was caught doing some shady business dealings and not being completely upfront about his dealings with his clients. And they took him to task for it, and he was fired from the firm Mm -hmm. and furthermore suspended for a record 10 years from trading privileges, period. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So not great. Sort of like everything he built up for himself kind of in the toilet for the next 10 years. Yeah. The director of his compliance department at the time said, quote, after meeting him, it gave a whole new idea to the idea of pathological lying. (laughs) I am convinced that he cannot distinguish truth from fiction. He seems so believable and exerts such charm that until you start to take the thing apart, he gets a lot of people sympathetic to him. Huh. All right. Mm. At this point, it's 1983, and he's 23 years old. He Mm -hmm. moves back to California, to the L.A. area. And while here, he has a real drive to start accumulating wealth again and to make a new name for himself. Literally, because he changes his name. (laughs) (laughs) So he changes his name at this point to Joe Hunt. Okay. And that's who he is for the rest of the rest of the case so it's an easy name yeah easier than gamsky i guess but yeah. i mean not that that's hard yeah. so he immediately starts to reconnect with his old classmates from the harvard school while he's here and he talks to them about creating an investing and social club called the bbc not to be confused with the, the network. british television no, network not at okay. all <laughs> he does name it after or gets inspired for the name from his favorite restaurant in Chicago, the Bombay Bicycle Club. But the acronym BBC, in this case, stands for the Billionaire Boys Club. Got it. So Hunt was incredibly charismatic and charming, as I mentioned. Uh, I mentioned it several times because these are the two words that are in every article I read about him. Yeah, yeah. Um, So, you know, this is his, his main qualities that get him far in life. Mm-hmm. He would essentially have his friends agree to join this BBC and invest money and convince mm. their insanely wealthy parents and contacts to invest or to at least hold meetings with him about investing in, in the BBC. Mm-hmm. The club would be, in his words, used to invest all of this money into companies and to create new companies that would, in, you know, in turn create a return of profits to them that would be, you know, incredible and out outstanding and all of these things you know lots of big promises yeah 
One of his former investors describes Hunt as incredibly convincing, saying, quote, He had this quality about him. He just struck everybody who got to know him as the person you wanted to be with. So, young men continue to bring their parents and their friends as investors, including... Young men. Young men. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> I don't want to get sued. Yeah. You know the, the people of the village people are listening to this. A hundred percent, yes. Um, uh, included in this group of young men <laughs> are twins Tom and Dave May, who early on invest 160 k and <laughs> they join the BBC. They were heirs to this major department store money at the time, mm-hmm. um, May's department stores, which I don't never heard of, but I'm sure they were we're- big at the time. Robinson's May. Is that a thing? Yeah, the May company bought Robinson's. Oh, see, that's what it that's I, what it was then. And did they become Macy's or did Macy's acquire them? I never remember. That but yeah, I have they, no they idea, were, but they were a big department store, you know, in the 70s, 80s, I think. Okay, so that gives a good idea to how much money these these kids had yeah. access to, you know, and what their names meant. Yeah. Um so also Dean Carney and Ben Dosty were two of the first 12 boys who joined the BBC, and they all kind of knew Hunt from Harvard, or they knew of him through mutual friends, so everyone Mm -hmm. kind of trusted him. And Hunt presented the club to others as, quote, this new type of group, an organization where not the structure is important, but the merit of the individuals. Okay. The BBC did start to invest money, as they said they would, into different companies, and unfortunately, most of it did not pay off. Mm -hmm. They had a lot of failed dealings pretty early on, and they were spending in excess and not making any profit, really, and uh, some of the investors, like, pretty early on were watching their money, and they Mm -hmm. wanted it back. Yeah. By late 1983, which is, you know, within the same year or so when they formed the club, uh, Mm -hmm. they had already lost... $900,000. $900,000. Wow. Okay? Yeah. It didn't stop them from spending tons of money, though. Um, and this is when the Ponzi scheme of the BBC really, really ramped up their uh, their activity. Okay. So Hunt and the members of the BBC were frequently running up $3,000 tabs at nightclubs, leaving $500 plus tips everywhere they went. The members all had super fancy cars, and they were treated to shopping sprees by Hunt. It became part of the BBC code that no member should appear in public unless they wore a suit and tie. (laughs) And one mantra, or mantra, however you say it, that Hunt put out to members was, quote, The first rule, never feel sorry for anything you do. And the second, it's all right to lie if you know the truth. The first rule of BBC is don't talk about BBC. <laughs> I mean, that would have done them a lot better if that was the first rule, honestly. Yeah. So wait, sorry, the motto was don't, nothing you do wrong matters? Basically, don't feel sorry yeah. for anything you do. And if you lie, it's okay as long as you know the truth. Um, oh, sure. most people who lie know the truth. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, right? <laughs> Otherwise, they don't know they're lying. So yeah. figure that out. So by this time, despite borrowing, you know, What's the old phrase, borrowing from Peter to pay Paul? Is that it? Robbing Peter to pay Paul. Yeah, yeah. Basically, besides doing, despite them doing that, Hunt knew that he he needed a lot more money, and he needed it pretty quickly because he was getting more members to have their families invest, but 
it really wasn't working out for him. He owed a lot of people a lot of money, and they were getting pretty impatient with him. Like, they were not letting him off the hook. Yeah, it sounds like one of those things where it just kind of, like, got away from him, and the only way out was to gamble more. Exactly, exactly. In 1990, or sorry, 1983, one of his members named Simi Cooper introduces Joseph Hunt to a man named Ron Levin. Um, Ron Levin is a wealthy man in the L.A. area at the time. He is infamous in the community. He rolled with important business people. He lived a very lavish lifestyle. He was friends with celebrities. And for better or for worse, he was known by everyone to be filthy rich. Mm. He was a businessman. Really must unclear. be nice. Uh, amen. Amen. Like when I see pictures of the wealth of all of these people, I'm like, you make me sick. Yeah. Um, He was a businessman, but it's very unclear what he actually did for a living. I know one of the businesses he did was described as like a filming company, a media company. But when I looked into it a little bit, it kind of seemed like, have you ever seen the movie Nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal? Or Gyllenhaal, I knew Nightcrawler, the X-Men. Yeah. (laughs) Different, but different different but similar. Um, It's about, uh, he's like a paparazzi sort of freelance photographer or video mm. artist who goes out to like accidents and stuff listens to uh, police radio and goes out to accidents to get like their first video and scoop. sell it to news stations okay that's what it seems like he was running so okay not exactly the most uh ethical company yeah it doesn't yeah yeah and that's his business um not counting like his shady dealings that you can look <laughs> into Okay. Uh, so this guy, Ron Levin, at this time, uh, he's 42 years old, so he's quite a bit older than most of the members of the BBC. And one article said he was 51 years old, but everything else said he was in his early 40s, so I'm going to go with that. Hmm. Yeah. He was described by his friends as a prankster, and he acted mm. like a mischief li- mischievous little boy. I uh, – hot take. Pranks are not funny. Not pranks – the way people describe pranks now, they're not even pranks. Uh, no, they're just like mean. Mean-spirited things. Like when you look at prank videos on the internet now, it's just Ugh. like dudes with super gelled hair and tight pants doing shitty things to people and saying pranks. It, I mean, I feel like I see endless videos of like TikToks and things like that of people like throwing something at the back of someone's head in a department store and then acting like they didn't do anything. Right. Right. That is not a prank. No, you're just an asshole. Not a, exactly. And it's funny that you said that because even though his friends described him as a prankster and a mischievous little boy, I wrote that in turn, it really just means he's an asshole and a scam artist. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what everyone else knew him, knew him as. He was a con man. Yeah. And he just never got caught, really. So Ron Levin and Joe Hunt become fast friends after they meet. And Levin agrees to invest $5 million into the BBC. Whoa. Yeah. So they caught a big fish in their mind. Sure did. Yeah. He says he'll give access to Hunt. uh, He'll give Hunt access to this money by letting him in on a commodities account he has that's worth $5 million. And he does. He gives him access to this commodities account. And we know that Hunt is familiar with this sort of world. So he feels like, okay, I can definitely work with this, and mm-hmm. I can make a huge profit off of this for you. And then mm-hmm. their deal is after he turns this $5 billion into however 
many million dollars, he's going to split it with Levin 50-50, the earnings, mm. and then return the $5 million. Okay. So Hunt actually does this. He delivers on his promise, and he manages wow. to grow the $5 million into $14 million. That's surprising. Yeah, and it seems like everything was kind of on the up and up. Like he just huh. – he was actually good at what he did when he finally applied himself and when he got – in the in the game, I guess. I don't know what it was that he was doing yeah. so poorly before. Maybe he was just, you know, focusing on building this brand, but he, he did it. And okay. uh, then he goes to cash it out, and he discovers there's no money. Oh. And I don't know how commodities trading works, obviously, or how these <laughs> accounts work, but I guess uh-huh. he was building money into the account based on, like, deals and stuff like that. But okay. the $5 million was never there oh, in wow. the first place. Oh, got it. Okay. So he finds out that the account was a dummy account. And Levin had, before this, gone to a documentary film company and said he was making a film on commodity trading. Mm -hmm. And they needed to make this dummy account with $5 million in it, but it was going to be fake. And that the, the subject of the documentary named Joe can't know that it's fake or he won't be motivated to work hard at trading and, you know, make the the funds that they need to to take this documentary series off the ground. Ugh. Mm-hmm. And Joe... Prankster. What a prank. What a prank. This is a prank, you know? Yeah. So after Joe goes to, like, ask for the money from Levin, you know, like, let's liquidate the account, he's expecting to get $4 million out of this deal. Levin just keeps putting it off. He's like, oh, you know, one thing, one thing or another, it just kept being like, okay, wait, well, I'll do it, but don't worry, I'll wait. Joe has 80 investors waiting on him for this money because, of course, he's talking about it to the people who are begging him for money. Like, oh, I just made all this money. You're going to get a return right. on your investment now. Right. Joe didn't find out that this was all a scam until one day he was, like, physically at the trading company doing something <laughs> else. And one of the people that worked there was like, hey, when did you know the money wasn't real? Like – this is amazing you did this. When did you know? And Hunt just has to pretend like, um, oh, yeah, okay. So he's humiliated. Yeah. And he goes back to the BBC and tells them what happened with Levin. And, you know, all the boys are devastated. And uh, Levin eventually tells Hunt, listen, sorry, I didn't tell you about this. I really did want to make a documentary. Um, Thank you for doing what you did with the profits. And I'm going to... I'm going to open up a line of credit for for you. I'm going to open up a line of credit with the first million and a half dollars that we have from the profits, and I'm going to split everything with you. And he's like, okay, but then that never happens. So, two— And Levin is like the filthy rich guy, right? Filthy rich. Okay. Okay. Two days later, on June 7th, 1984, 6.45 a.m., Ron Levin's friends show up at his Beverly Hills duplex because it's like a Friday, I think, and they're supposed to be going to New York for a weekend vacation where they're going to party it up. Why are you living in a duplex if you're, like, right, rich? Right, I mean— Also, I feel like uh, the minute any of our stories get into time of day is like, oop, it's coming. Yeah, exactly. Right? Don't you know that? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so the first two people to arrive at Levin's house are 19-year-old Dean Factor of Max Factor family fame. Oh, wow. I know. Okay. And a, man, a guy named Michael Brodeur, who also is very wealthy. And they're buddies with Levin, and they show up with their suitcases ready to meet for this trip, and he's not answering his door. Mm. 
They also notice that the burglar alarm right out front is disarmed, which is pretty unusual, but everything's locked yeah. and they can't get in and they go around back, they can't get in. And then yeah. the other two attendees of the trip, Mark and Laura Geller, arrive and Ron is, you know, not answering, not available. It's not really cell phone time at this time, so they can't really get in touch with him. Yeah. So they decide it's not too long until Ron's housekeeper is supposed to arrive. He had a pretty, like, regular schedule. And they're like, okay, when she gets here, she'll let us in. So let's just wait it out and see. Maybe he's on, like, a bender. You know, who knows? 7.15 a.m., about a half hour after they first arrive, the housekeeper, whose name is Blanche Sturkey, she lets them in. And when they go inside, there's no Ron anywhere. Um, When they look around, his clothes are still there. His shoes are still there. His, like, black bag that he carried everywhere with him, it's sitting there. And when they go in his room, he usually had a white comforter on his bed. Like, he was, everything was white. His Rolls Royce was white. He wore white suits. He was very pristine and very particular about everything he had. Doesn't that seem like such a rich thing? Like, everything, like, because that means you can afford to have it clean constantly. Or just toss it away. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that too. And so it's gone, the white comforter, and it's been replaced with a green blanket that has, like, flowers on it. And the housekeeper is like, oh, this is the guest blanket. I don't know why this would be on his bed. Hmm. Also of note is the TV remote is missing, which never comes up again in the case. But let me tell you, there's not a single article that doesn't talk about the TV remote or the clicker being missing. (laughs) That's so, so it's not integral to the case, but they all keep mentioning it. Yeah, it's just one of the things that's sort of out of place and strange. Yeah. Um, There's two salads unfinished in the kitchen that were like partially eaten. So it looks like he had a guest of some type. And they're like, okay, what is going on? So they call his mom, Carol, who he was known to speak with daily. And uh, she's like, I don't know where he is. He should be there. Um, everyone who spoke to him the day before said that he was working on business deals that day and he had told everybody about this trip he had planned for the weekend. So no one was really expecting to hear from him today either because they knew he was going to New York. Right. So they speak to his mom and at 9 a.m. she calls the police and says, like, I want to file a missing persons report. But because it's the early 80s, that rule where you have to wait two days is still in effect. So, and just P.S. to everyone who thinks this is a thing, because this is still always in the media and in, like, right. crime things, it is not a thing. It is not a thing. And I wish that could be dispelled in every single true crime anything, because I feel yeah. like most people still think that's a thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, if you are someone who knows someone who's missing, you can report it immediately. Yes. And we've all learned that, you know, from all these different... <laughs> At the very least from, like, TV shows, that the first 48 hours is, like, integral in finding somebody. So you know someone's missing. You report that shit, like, that day. And if you're wrong, big deal. Right. Big deal. So anyway, but it's the time when this is actually still in effect. So she has to wait two days. That evening, that same evening all of this happened in the morning, that same evening there's a strange sequence of events that happens in New York across the country. And remember, this is where they're supposedly all going to be going anyway. Okay. So let's go to 11 p.m. on the same day. This is, uh, again, this is June 7th, 1984, 11 p.m. Let's do it. Let's go on his let's journey. Let's go on his journey. In New York City, a man named Ron Levin checks into the Plaza Hotel and gets a room on the 10th floor. And the next morning at 6 a.m., the Plaza like front desk 
contacts Ron Levin's room because he's run out of credit on his card that he's that he like left on file when he got the room. He's from the night before. From the night before. Oh, from t- one one and a half days. So the next day, nothing happens of note. June 9th is the day after. So two days after he checks in. He checks in at eleven p.m. Next day, nothing happens. June 9th, six a.m. Okay. Okay. So they contact him, but even still, in one day. <laughs> One full day, he's run up a $1,300 bill. Wow. And they try to run his card to, like, pay off some of it, and it's unsuccessful. They, like, lower the amount to pay off just a portion. It's unsuccessful. So they contact like, him about his, his bill. It's like Anna Delvey. Oh, right? That's who totally gave me that vibe. I've sent the wire. <laughs> <laughs> I still haven't watched uh, the, uh, the, the series. Oh, my God, you have to. I know. I don't know what, what I'm doing. So they're like, okay, this is unusual. They go up to the room, and he's, he's nowhere to be found. No one's in the room. When they walk in the room, there's a metal attache, attache case in there and no Ron Levin. So they decide they're going to double lock the room from the outside so he can't get in when he comes back because, you know, he's delinquent on his payment. Right. That same evening— a supervisor, like a security supervisor, sees a man going down like the back employee staircase, and mm-hmm. he's carrying a silver attache case. And they're like, he's like, what are you doing here? And the guy tells him, oh, the elevator is out of service, so I'm taking this 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 way down. But the security guy knows the elevator is not out of service, and he knows no one's supposed to be here. And so he radios for backup. Mm-hmm. And by the time this man gets downstairs, it's Ron Levin, this guy from the hotel. He's Mm -hmm. surrounded by a bunch of, like, security people. And he drops the case, and the hotel manager says that he does a karate-type stance in the middle Mm -hmm. of, like, the palm court where they, like, dine outside of the hotel. Okay. And he even says he does, like, a hi-ya kind of sound. Okay. Okay? Okay. So um, everyone's kind of around him, like, what's going on? And then he fl- he makes it run for it, and he runs towards the revolving door of the hotel to go a different direction to get to get away. Uh-huh. He breaks the door in the process, like shatters it, <laughs> and the security guys chase him, and then they have him, and they they're like, "What are you doing? What happened? How did you get this attaché case from the room? We double locked it." And he's like, "I kicked the door down." And there's pictures, and he like completely destroyed the door to that room. Jesus. So there's $2,100 in damages between that door and the shattered door in the, you know, in the lobby. And so police are called out and they arrest him. Once in custody, they find out that the man is not named Ron Levin. Mm. His name is James Pittman. Hmm. Ron Levin, I I haven't mentioned his description much, but he was in his 40s. He was tall, gray hair, slender, white guy. Okay. James Pittman is a 30-something-year-old, muscly black guy. Okay. Like, no resemblance whatsoever. And this is the guy who adopted the karate stance? Yes. Okay. And was calling himself Ron Levin and had a credit card that was Ron Levin. So we find out that James Pittman was Joe Hunt's hired bodyguard for the BBC. Hmm. On June 12th, two days after this arrest, Joe Hunt arrives in New York City, and he hires a attorney named Robert Ferraro to bail out his friend, quote-unquote Ron Levin, um, James Pittman, and he pays him on the spot $4,700 in cash. 
Uh, wow. 2000 is for the bail, 2000 is for the damages of the hotel, and then 700 retainer fee. Okay. And he, he gets him out. So James Pittman gets out and re- returns back to California immediately, and he returns duties as Hunt's bodyguard for the BBC. Hmm. Now, a missing persons report is finally filed after all of this comes to light, and it's on June 22nd for round 11, 16 mm-hmm. days after he initially went missing. Okay. This is also 10 days after Pittman returns to L.A. For, after getting bail, getting bailed out. So after the missing persons report is placed, um, they want to search Levin's house, authorities, but no one gives him authorization to do so. His family's like, no, you're not searching his house. Um, we already were there. Like, there's nothing to, to find out, and we don't want his – he's a shady guy. So I think they wanted to keep his, like, dealings under wraps because they're like, you know, we're trying to find him, not ruin his life when we find him. Right. So they don't have a lot to go on. They're trying to, like, go to contacts of his. No one knows where he is. That's the same story from everybody. He was supposed to be going on this trip, and he didn't show up. So luckily, detectives receive a phone call to talk to the May brothers' attorney. Those are those, mm-hmm. like, attorney, uh, the people who invested all that money right away. Okay. And they say that they have information about Levin's disappearance. Hmm. Um, they say that very shortly after... Joe returned to L.A. with um, James. The two of them held a meeting with the BBC, and they said it was very important everyone came, and uh, they told everyone when they got there, like, if you're here, you're being trusted with information, and if you don't think you can do that, then leave now. And no one leaves, and he tells the group of the BBC boys, the Billionaire Boys Club, that he and Jim, quote, knocked off Levin. Uh Okay, and in his story to them, he tells them all the following information. He says that on June 6th, which is the day before he was going on this trip, that, you know, Joe knew he was going on the trip the next weekend, so he knew this was the perfect opportunity. He went over to his house and chatted with Ron about the money he owed him and what they could do about it. Um, Ron served him salad. They ate for a little bit. And then at 9.30 p.m., a knock was at the door, which was planned, and that was Jim. And they let Jim in because... Joe said, oh, I know him. That's someone who works for me. That's Jim. But Ron had no idea who he was. Right. So the plan that Joe and Jim had was to pretend that Jim was an enforcer for the mafia and Joe didn't know about it. And he was trying to get Joe to repay him a debt. And uh, Joe was going to then finger Levin for having all of his money. And then the two of them were going to con Levin into thinking this whole thing was happening and that he had to help them out. And then they were going to – and that was the plan basically. And so that's how it started. And then Levin, you know, bought everything they they were selling and he signed paperwork for them under duress and he signed a $1.5 million check from his Swiss bank account to one of the organizations under the BBC. And then they brought Ron up to his room. They put him face down in his bed on top of his comforter. And then Jim held a gun to his head. Joe made the signal. Jim shoots Ron in the back of the head and then wraps him in the comforter. And they carry him out the back door into the trunk of uh, one of their BMWs. And they take him up to Soledad Canyon and buried him at the very top. I don't... They had gotten their money... Yep, but they they wanted revenge, basically. Okay. So he says that when they got to the top of the canyon area, they Mm -hmm. shot his body up with shotgun shells also to try to make him unrecognizable. 
And at Ugh. one point, Joe was laughing about it and said that his brain had popped out and landed on his chest. Oh, my God. Okay. So this is the way they're talking about it, too. Bragging, <sighs> no big deal. Ha, ha, ha. We got our money back, and we, we tricked him. Yeah. So this evidence is presented to the Levin family, and the Levin's, um, Ron Levin's father finally gives authorization for them to search the apartment. When authorities search the apartment, they find a stack of seven pages of handwritten notes. And I'm going to read you what one of the notes has. It has a list of 14 things. Okay. And it says, at Levin's to do. And here is the list of 14 things to do. One, okay. tape mouth. Two, oh, Jesus. handcuff. Three, put gloves. Four, close blinds. Five, scan for tape recorder. Six, kill dog. In parentheses, <gasps> emphasis. No. Seven, explain situation. Eight, put answering services on first ring. Nine, get alarm code and get alarm access code and arm code. Ten, date stamped documents and date stamp letters. Eleven, make file of letters take with you. Twelve, use corporate seal and have Levin sign agreements and fill in blanks. Thirteen, Xerox everything so he has initiated copies. Fourteen, Xerox authorization. And then in the margins, there's Joe Hunt's signature. Um, his name appears several times on the documents. There's also a side note um, talking about how Jim is to dig a pit. And then there's a page with a simple, like, hand-drawn, very rudimentary map to the a ranger station at Soledad Canyon. I want to just say the dog is fine. Oh, thank God. The dog was not killed. I just have to put that out there immediately. But it was on their list, and it was emphasis. Who knows? So, much like the episode, I guess people do make these kind of notes. <laughs> Apparently, yeah. Um, Blanche, when she's asked to the housekeeper, she says that Ron was last seen wearing a gray jogging suit and a gray robe, and they're both missing. And the comforter's missing, the TV remote is missing. Further adding to Joe's suspicious activities, two days after Ron goes missing, Joe deposits that $1.5 million check that he talked about, and it bounces because Ugh. there was $40 in the account. Oh. Okay. And Levin signed the check in the wrong place, which made the whole process more complicated. So was this super rich guy never actually rich? It's unclear. It's okay. unclear still to this day. Wow. So Weird. he flaunted okay. a lot of wealth, but maybe he wasn't. Who knows? Yeah. Meanwhile, before the search of the estate uncovered the, the list evidence, when they still were investigating this, July 7th, 1984, 31 days after the disappearance of Ron Levin... BBC member Ben Dosti brings in his friend Reza Eslaminia, and he says, you know, this is going to be a new member of the club, a potential new member, and he says that his father, Reza's father, has millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. His father is 56-year-old Hedayat, I'm going to say that name wrong, I'm so sorry, but Hedayat Eslaminia, okay. and he had $30 million in the bank. Um, he had acquired it from working for the Shah of Iran, hmm. and he was currently living in exile in San Francisco Bay, in the San Francisco Bay area, since the 1979 Iranian Revolution, when okay. the Shah was no longer in power. And okay. his current like job, basically, was like surreptitiously working remotely <laughs> to help overthrow the new leader in Iran, uh, allegedly. Okay. Okay. And he's just sitting on $30 million of cash while he does this. Hmm. Reza hates his dad. Very publicly, 
he hates his dad for multiple reasons. It seems like it's because, like, he has all this wealth and he's not doing anything for his kid about it. Hmm. Um, and his kid clearly wants to be affluent wealthy. and wealthy. Yeah. I mean, he's joining the Billionaire Boys Club and talking about his dad's $30 million. So Joe Hunt sees this as a great opportunity. Hmm. Joe Hunt and Ben, the guy who brought Reza in, come up with a kidnapping plan. So Joe, Ben, Reza, Jim, and another early BBC member who we haven't really heard much of yet named Dean Carney okay. plan an abduction in Northern California. They figure if they kidnap Reza's father and he disappears because he had all of these like strange dealings and his like issues with Iran – Right. That they would, everyone would just assume it was related to that and they could just get yeah. away with it, like, no problem. Mm-hmm. So their plan is to kidnap him, take him to their Bel Air house, and sign over all of his funds, and then kill him. <laughs> his son I, yeah. is involved in this, okay? So July 30th, 1984, Joe and Ben dress up as UPS workers. They were originally going to dress up as policemen, but Joe had told them that, quote, police attract more attention than delivery boys. They go to Hedayat's house, and they have a trunk that they're delivering. It has his address on it wrapped in, like, paper and stuff. Okay. And they go into the house. He lets them in, and they um, – the plan is to, like, chloroform him and knock him out and put him in the trunk. And Jim is the one who's supposed to do this. Remember, Jim is the guy who was posing as Levin before. He's the security yeah. guard. So yeah. he couldn't do it. He He – got overwhelmed either by the smell of the chloroform or the situation so joe does it joe grabs the rag chloroforms head a yacht and they put him in the trunk and they load him it with load the trunk into the load the trunk that he's in into the trunk of a car that dean and ben are driving okay uh reza is in a like separate mercedes and the other two are in a separate car as well okay so dean and ben are driving the truck that have the trunk in it And they start to get frightened while they're driving because the guy wakes up in the trunk and he's freaking out and he's like Uh banging and begging to be let out. And so the plan was when this happened, because they knew it was a long drive, that they were supposed to like pull over somewhere like discreet, take him out and chloroform him again and then handcuff him and put him in the car. They couldn't do it. They they got too scared. They were nervous. And so what they do instead is they first – poke holes in the trunk with a screwdriver so that he can breathe. Okay. But he's screaming so much and it's scaring them because Dean is paranoid that someone's going to hear him even though they're driving in the car, but they're Uh not the brightest people anyway, obviously. And they didn't plan this out very well. And I don't think they realized the magnitude of what they were doing. So in a panic, he tapes the holes shut on the trunk and then the man suffocates to death. Oh, God inside the trunk while they're on their way up there. So they get him to the house, the Bel Air house, where they're supposed to be, like, getting him to sign away his funds, and he's already dead. So the plan is obviously not going according to what they had talked about. Mm -hmm. But Joe is like, no worries. We have a secondary plan since he's already dead because they were going to kill him anyway, so Joe's not worried. He says that since Reza is his eldest son, maybe they can get him as the conservator of his, like, estate and stuff like that, and then they could get the money that way. What they weren't planning on was that Hedayat was reported missing literally the next day by his girlfriend, and when Reza meets with her to try to, like, you know, save face and, oh, yeah, whatever, 
Right, he, like throw her off the scent. Exactly. He uses past tense to describe his father the whole time and says Ugh. to her, like, oh, you know, he loved you. And she's not an idiot. So she gets really suspicious really quick. She tells the authorities about it, and they begin looking into the angle that maybe he's not missing, maybe he's dead, and that maybe Reza had something to do with it. Mm-hmm. At the same time, Jim Pittman is telling the lawyer of the BBC that they killed Reza and that tells him about the whole plan, and he's, like, bragging <laughs> about it. Wow. The lawyer, for some unknown reason, because I guess it could have been protected after under privilege, I'm imagining, mm-hmm. he decides to report it to the FBI. Reza, in the meantime, has denied his conservatorship, and it turns out it didn't even matter because the wealth that he thought his father had was oh, imaginary. God. He had lost oh. all of his money when he fleed from Iran to America. He was penniless. This- this whole story is people robbing people who don't have money in the yeah. first place. Yeah, and it's never clear whether Reza believed his father had money and his, he just wasn't aware of it, or right. whether he actually knew his mo- dad didn't have money and wanted like revenge against his father and wanted him dead anyway, because everybody knows he hated him. It's right. never really clear. But at the end of the day, none of it mattered. So Joe, Dean, and Jim are arrested on September 28th, 1984, for charges of conspiracy, robbery, and first-degree murder for the killing of Levin, mm-hmm. and for conspiracy, kidnapping, and first-degree murder in the murder of um, Hedayat. Okay. Reza and Ben are arrested for second-degree murder, conspiracy, and kidnapping of Hedayat, Reza's father. Now, wow. February 3rd, 1987, Hunt, Joe Hunt, stands trial for the murder of Levin, where they don't have a body still. Okay. So prior to this, since Dean was facing the death penalty, uh-huh. he decided to strike a deal for full immunity for everything okay. in exchange for his full cooperation and testimony, and then he enters the witness protection program. Hmm. And wow. he, on the stand, he tells everything, every detail of every dealing in the BBC about both murders, and he says that... Um, he knew exactly where Hedayat's body was. He's able to lead authorities to find the body. And they do. Okay. They find his remains um, off, like, a cliff in the canyon area. And um, it's unclear. It's sort of grazed over, but I think they burned his body because they only find bones and fragments. Okay. And he says that this is also where Levin is uh, buried. And by the way, that rudimentary map that they find in Levin's house— uh-huh. It's very close to where they find Hedayat's body. Uh, but they never find Levin's body, despite wow. him saying, I know exactly where we buried it. They go there, they never find it. Wow, that is just like the episode. Yeah, yeah. When they question Jill on the stand about his notes that they found in Levin's house, about the whole mm-hmm. plan, he says it was just a joke. <laughs> he says this was all for the ruse. Like, they were pretending that they had had a meeting and the, about the mafia hit. And so he was taking these notes while he was there saying that Jim had told him, like, this was the plan and what they were going to do to him if he didn't cooperate. So it was all just part of the ruse. It, it wasn't an actual plan. <laughs> he says that during the whole ruse, Ron didn't even believe it. Ron Levin didn't believe the whole mafia angle. And he said to them, don't con the con man. <laughs> Despite this, many members of the BBC, including Jeff Raymond, uh, Dean Carney, who we know went to the Witness Protection Program, a man named named Steve Taglianetti. They all testify against him uh, on the stand and say that 
Quote, he said that since two or three hundred thousand dollars wasn't going to solve his problem, he wasn't going to waste too much time trying to get that money, but he said that he was going to get around to killing Levin one of these days. Um, other members testify against him, and then the defense hinges on the fact that there's no body. So no body, no crime. They're saying that he, he is a con man, and this is his last yeah. con. He disappeared. Yeah. And the defense calls a few witnesses. Um, mainly there's two, one whose name is Carmen Conchola, and then there's another male witness who they didn't name. But both of these people say that they've seen Levin since his alleged murder, and they give, like, around L.A., they have no idea wow. who he is before this, and they give detailed descriptions of how they saw him, where they, where he was, and they, they don't have anything to gain from this, so they seem very credible. Hmm. The jury, regardless, finds Hunt guilty in the Levin trial, and hmm. on July 6, 1987, he is sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole. Wow. Jim had a separate trial for this. And his defense attorney highlights basically how unsavory of a character Levin was, how he conned everybody, and they present Jim as sort of like an unwitting scapegoat by Joe Hunt, that he was basically conned into doing everything, and he was just trying to, like, do what he was told. He had no, he wasn't involved in the murders. He was involved in some of, like, the shady dealings, but he was just, you know, the worst thing he did was the hotel thing. Right. And at the end of his trial, there's actually a hung jury— leaning towards acquittal. Wow. So they retry him in 1987, October, um, so several months later, and he gets another hung jury. Wow. So the prosecution realizes that it's going to be really hard to get him on anything, and so they decide to plead him out. He pleads guilty to accessory after the fact and some concealed weapons charges, Mm -hmm. and he gets time served for three and a half years because that's the time he's been waiting for the trials to happen. Right. And he's out. That's it. But we'll we'll get more on him in just a minute. Okay. April 14th, 1992. So this is several years later. Hunt is going to go to trial for the murder of Eslamania. Okay. And he decides to represent himself. Oy. And we know how this usually goes. Yeah, not so great. So the trial lasts about eight months. There are over 120 witnesses called. Oof. And while this usually doesn't go well, this time... There's a jury deadlock in favor of acquittal. Wow. In a shocking turn of events. Eight to four in favor of acquittal for Joe Hunt. That's wild. Yeah. So there's a mistrial. And prosecution... Prosecution. Prosecution. <laughs> prosecution knows he's already got a life charge with no possibility of parole in L.A. And uh-huh. so they decide they're not going to pursue this anymore. And they just dismiss the charges against him. Wow. This means also that Jim is also dismissed from the charge. So he never even goes to trial for Estemania's murder. Whoa. Now, remember I said more on him in a minute? Yeah. The next year, in 1993, Jim gives a televised interview. In the interview, you can find it online too, he mm-hmm. brags and confesses that he did kill Levin. He buried him with Hunt. Everything was true. It was all a scam. It was all because of the scam that, that, that he did against him. It was all revenge and to get money. Wow. But he confesses to everything because he knows he can't get retried because of double jeopardy. <laughs> and uh, he tells them that he'll lead them to the body. They bring him up to the canyon where he says they buried Levin. They do not find the body. Weird. Very weird. 
Ben and Reza, the other two people who were going to be convicted of second-degree murder, or were uh-huh. charged with it, they get convicted <laughs> of second-degree murder and conspiracy, and they both get life sentences without parole. Hmm. However, 10 years after their sentencing, the conviction is overturned because Whoa. the jury in that case had heard prejudicial tape recording evidence that was never admitted into evidence. Oh, so they get out on sort of a technicality. Huh. The prosecution wants to retry them, but they can't do it without the cooperation of Dean, who is in witness mm-hmm. protection, mm-hmm. and he refuses to reveal his new identity, and he doesn't want to get involved in any way. He wants to completely cut ties from everything that happens, and mm-hmm. he is allegedly a licensed attorney now, but nobody knows his identity. Hmm. So here are some updates on the case. Levin's body has still never been found. Wow. So the theory still exists among some people that he's still alive out there. The motive for him disappearing, in addition to like stealing all this money from the BBC, was mm-hmm. that he had a court date that he was going to be tried for grand theft. Mm-hmm. Um, that was right around the time he went missing. Okay. And there are six people that came forward after the trial that have said they've seen Levin in multiple places. There are uh, the Gerards who said they seen him in Greece in 1987. They were friends with him, and they said they saw him from afar at a restaurant, and he just he just left when they made eye contact. There's a man who is a funeral director named um, Ivan Werner in 1985 in L.A., and he said that he saw Levin at a funeral. And in 1987 in Brentwood, a uh, major D named Nadia Galeb, who used to see uh, Levin as a nightly customer, said mm-hmm. she saw him like across the street at his car. And at the time, she had no idea he was even, like, dead or missing because she just didn't keep up with that type of thing. And it wasn't (laughs) until, like, she was approached by someone saying, like, oh, have you heard about this very public trial? And she's like, that's so weird. I just saw him. He's not missing. So that's all they have to say that he might not be missing. But um, I watched a episode of a show called Marsha Clark Investigates the First 48, Marsha Clark from the O.J. Simpson trial. Yeah. Um, Great episode, by the way. I don't know if, I guess it's a series she has, but um, she basically poses that none of these seem very credible. Yeah. Because it would be very unlikely that he would go missing and stay in LA. Right. And um, even the people who said they saw him, every person who said they saw him, it links up around when he was like in the news. And she's like, you know, when you see something in the news about a a blue convertible involved in the crime and then you see blue convertibles everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of her theory. In 1997, four years after Jim Pittman did that interview where he confesses to everything, Uh he ends up dying of kidney failure at the age of 44. Wow. In 2018, Joe Hunt, who is still in prison to this day, he tries to have his sentence commuted and changed to letting him have possibility for parole. Okay. Um, In 2018, he's 59, so now he would be, what, 62 or 63? Okay. And he says, quote, I see other men similarly situated getting commutations and figured, why not me too? So now he's he's citing his like stellar prison record. Um, he does volunteer work and religious services. He's got good behavior. And he he works with other inmates to help them with their legal work, to help them like get court forms filled out and write their briefs and whatever. Yeah. Um, his application also discusses his embrace of yogi and meditation culture 
and a brand of Eastern religion that he is involved with, practiced by the Ananda Church of Self-Realization. Great. He says, was I a catastrophic world-class jackass in 1984? No doubt. But it's not right that I get to be the garbage dump of everybody's peccadilloes. Okay. He has a uh, book that he wrote in jail. And it's uh, on his website because he has a website for like free Joe Hunt that his family has out for him. It says, Joe invites you to enjoy a free copy of his novel, Blue Dharma, the story of Anayala, or something like that. And uh, he co-authored it with his cellmate. And it recounts the struggle between good and evil. This book is complete with demons, elves, and other mythical creatures. Oh, great. Hard pass. Yeah. Um, ben Dosty is a pastor now, and mm-hmm. he teaches for Harvest Fresno Church, where he lives with his wife, Sonia, and they have two kids. Okay. And I'm just going to read a quote from a website about him just to show you the kind of life he's living now. Okay. It says, ben and, ben and Sonia have two instruments of sanctification. They're two boys, Gideon and Luke. Yeesh. Um, <laughs> Reza, the other player in all of this, he seems to have had a really dicey future. Um, okay. There's two charges against him I was able to find past his acquittal, because remember he got out after 10 years on right. a technicality. In two, and there's very little information about how all of this turns out. But in 2002, he was found with cocaine, heroin, and hypothetic, hypodermic syringes in his possession at a traffic stop. Wow. And he was able to like push this trial all the way to 2019 on technicalities mm-hmm. and stuff. Okay. Uh, no word on what happened with that. And also, he, he was a taxi driver, and he hit and killed a pedestrian <gasps> in San Francisco's Tenderloin neighborhood on August 11th, 2012, named Ugh. Edmund Coppola. That um, is, oh, that's one of my biggest fears, driving, is like accidentally hitting oh a pedestrian. The, just the thought of that happening is so scary. Yeah, the guy was just walking in a crosswalk, 38 Ugh. years old. Um, and he was, there was a manhunt out for him at that point. No word on what happened with that either, though. So hopefully he paid for his crimes. And um, the whole story, the Billionaire Boys Club, has been, like, immortalized in many different medias. There was a um, TV movie that won awards for – it was nominated for Emmy Awards, I guess I should say, for um, the actors Judd Nelson and Brian McNamara, who played Hunt and Carney. Um, There was a – podcast called Hollywood and Crime that's very popular that does a a big portion on the Billionaires Boys Club. Yeah. There was a movie that came out in 2018 called The Billionaires Boys Club and it was supposed to be this big blockbuster hit. Wasn't. But it starred Kevin Spacey. Oh. And it was one year after everything happened with his disgusting history. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a huge box office flop. Hmm. He was playing Ron Levin. (laughs) <laughs> and that is the story of the Billionaire Boys Club, the murder of Ron, the alleged murder or disappearance of Ron Levin, and the murder of Hedia Eslaminia. Wow. Yeesh. That is wild. That's crazy. Isn't that an insane story that just yes. never. I mean, I can see why it was made into a movie. I could see yeah. why it would have been probably good if it was made with different people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, wow. Yeah, and Johan is still saying he's innocent, still saying everything was, you know, he has no idea um, why these people put 
were all against him. They're all of their own motivations because they were probably involved. And he says that Levin is alive somewhere still. All right. But, you know, I mean, I think it's very unlikely. So Yeah, doesn't sound very uh, probable. No. So what do you think about that? I think that story is just wild. Yeah. Uh, you did a great job covering oh, it. Good job. You. Thank you. For how I would rate the episode, mm. I did not think this was a very good episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I kind of liked the character that was the foil to Stone. So I'll give it a I'll give it a C for watchability. Okay. I'm actually gonna give it a B plus because oh. I also like that character. And yep. I really liked the sort of departure from the normal Law & Order format where we, you know, first half is Law, second half is Order. Yeah. I enjoyed getting into the Order part and having Stone be like the main character rather than Logan. <laughs> yeah, true. So I'm going to give it a B plus. And then for how it dealt with it, I mean, gosh, it sounds like they did a lot of things. It sounds like they did a good job of kind of picking elements of the case to try to show it. You know, it sounds like they embellished the success of the character Mm -hmm. in kind of representing himself, but I didn't really see any, like, problematic stuff, so I'll give it a B- minus for how it dealt with stuff. What about you? I'm going to give it a, I'm going to give it a, I'm going to give it an A-. minus. Wow. I think they did really well. I think they had so many elements. I think they were very creative in how they changed it to not be exact. But even though they embellished, like, his success in representing himself, he still did get a hung jury. Like, that was unheard of that someone who had no law background was able to get a hung jury representing himself over eight months of testimony against, like, what should have been a slam dunk case against him. Yeah, yeah. Um, And the whole, like, no body thing. I mean, there were a lot of really similar details you know yeah true wow i had not heard of this at all and it's such a big complicated detailed case i'm shocked i'd never heard of it yeah me too actually so ripped from the headlines is an indie podcast and if you enjoy listening to us and think that other folks might too the best thing you can do is rate and review our podcast on where whatever platform you're using to listen to our episodes because that'll help other people find us That's right. And most people try a podcast because friends recommend it. So if you're enjoying our show, please tell a friend. Yes. And our social media is Ripped Headlines on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Our email is rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com. We love getting email, so send us an email. (laughs) And don't forget to check out our website, rippedheadlinespod.com. There you'll find to our link... You'll find a link to our Patreon, which has some great perks. And you get the joy of supporting one of your favorite podcasts. Yes, and a percentage of our Patreon proceeds get donated to the Equal Justice Initiative. So by supporting us, you are supporting positive change in the world. And if you'd like, you can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com backslash N and Matt. Or forward slash. Listening. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a forward <laughs> slash. Thank you for listening to Rip from the Headlines, where you get the facts and some fiction. We'll see you next week. And until then, stay out of the headlines. Bye. Bye. Bye.